Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Theology Nara. Okay, this episode is going to be um well it's going to be controversial. I mean, I, I <laughs> this is Theology Nara and, and almost every episode is controversial, I think. But this one is is particularly sensitive. Let me let me just give you a brief backstory on how I got in touch with uh Julie Maxwell, um Dr. Julie Maxwell. Uh, first of all, she's a pediatrician in in the United Kingdom and has been uh, in the last several years has been fairly involved with the um, the gender conversation specifically as a pediatrician how to best uh, um, treat or think through uh, teens and children with gender dysphoria and she has written uh, articles on this topic and has um, kind of just entered into a very controversial area. So uh, Julie read my book and really loved it. She reached out with an email saying, hey, I loved your book, Embodied. Um, I do have a slightly different perspective on your uh, position on pronouns, like using someone's pronouns, or as some people say, using someone's preferred pronouns. Okay, so and um, so let, let me just first of all share just as concisely as I can kind of my perspective on pronouns. I often get asked, you know, should you use should a Christian use a person's preferred pronouns? Now, I just want to acknowledge some people don't like the term preferred pronouns. Some people say just call them your pronouns or their pronouns. Um, uh, and so I, I've thought through this question for a, um, quite, a bit of, quite a bit of time. And uh, have I have a whole a good chunk of my chapter in my book, Embodied, deals with um, whether Christians should use someone's pronouns if they don't match their biological sex, okay? So if a male wants you to call them um, she or her or, or maybe they, them, you know, is another uh, part of this conversation, you know, should a Christian comply to that? Now, some people would say that it's lying to use the pronouns of a person that don't, that doesn't match their biological sex. Other people would say like, I don't want to, and this is, um, I'm, I'm going to quote somebody here, you know, I don't want to feed their delusion, I think that language is a bit strong and um, can be pretty dehumanizing. Um, but that would be an argument too. Like if somebody thinks they are, um, or if somebody is a male and thinks they're female, or a female and thinks they're male, or or identifies as a sex different than who they actually are, that um, they are deluding themselves. And if I use their pronouns, then I'm only um, furthering that delusion. Okay, so that would be one one perspective that we need to be truth tellers. That we need to not encourage somebody's um, wrong view of themselves. Another perspective um, is what I call, uh, or what Greg Coles calls, uh, pronoun hospitality, and this is the view that I do take. Um, and I've talked about this in the podcast before, so I know this is probably uh, a bit old news to some of you who, who have been listening for a while. But uh, pronoun, ho- pronoun hospitality says that you don't necessarily need to agree um, with a person's use of their pronouns, um, but as people who want to meet someone where they're at, we should exercise hospitality and use the pronouns that they desire that you would use of them, okay? And the way I've explained it is that language is shared social space, right? Shared social space. So um, if you're watching on the video version of this podcast, um, which you can go to YouTube, uh, and it, usually the, the video version is released after the audio version. But um, for those of you watching, uh, so language is shared social space. I'm doing some arm signals here. Over here, you have uh, person A, and person A has a certain worldview. And over here, you have person B, and person B has another certain worldview. And the way they relate to each other is through this common ground of language. Language is shared social space. Now, sometimes as person A and person B are trying to talk, there's um, worldview differences that affect how they use certain words. And so person A might believe that pronouns are supposed to match their a person's biological sex, whereas person B might think, no, pronouns match my gender identity, not my biological sex. Person A can say, well, I don't even agree with that whole perspective. I don't even think gender identity is a thing. Somebody could, you know, person A might have that worldview. But for person B, it is a thing. It's a huge part of their life, and pronouns can be a big part of that, of their journey. And so somebody kind of has to give in. 
And this is where I'm going to say, as a Christian, I think that Christians should use the person's pronouns um, as a way of meeting them where they're at, as a way of using this. Because if we demand that person be lines up with our worldview commitments and uses language in the same exact way that we understand language, because again, language is connected to someone's worldview, then we're going to have a hard time relating with people. And specifically within the trans conversation, pronouns oftentimes are a huge deal to trans-identified people. When I say trans-identified, I'm including non-binary, people who identify as gender fluid, gender queer, and so on. Even if you don't understand that, even if you get frustrated at the whole pronoun thing, um, for other people, this is a huge deal. And for some people, hearing pronouns that match their biological sex can exacerbate their dysphoria. Um, And it could possibly even lead to um, thoughts of self-harm, maybe even suicidal ideation, and, and so on. Um, so as a way of meeting someone where they're, where they're at, I, I think I, I in the chapter in my book and in other uh, places, I encourage people to use um, a trans-identified person's pronouns, okay? Even if you don't necessarily agree that pronouns should match gender identity and not biological sex. So that's my general position. Now, over the last couple of years, I have talked to several counselors uh, psychologist. I'm thinking right now of one medical doctor, one counselor, um, another medical doctor, a parent, a couple detransitioners, people who used to identify as trans and now lo- no longer do. Um, all of these people, I'm not going to name names, but I'm, I'm, I've got their names in my head, have said to me, basically, Preston, I, I, um, I see your general point, and I might even agree with it, but when it comes to parents and children... Um, we we would recommend not using your child's pronouns, okay? And I've so I've tried to think through this perspective because these are people that I are very you know gracious and wise and and are working a lot with with young trans identified kids, okay? So like pre adolescent or even adolescent kids, and um, they they have said there are certain cases where we we don't think it's helpful or good for the kid for the parent especially to use the person's pronouns. Obviously the parent should go be should be obvious. Obviously the parent should be loving and listening and create a a nurturing um environment and should um walk with the child and listen to the child and cry with the child and rejoice with the child and be there for them, provide for them, provide a loving, safe context. But in certain situations, that doesn't necessarily, this is their perspective, that doesn't necessarily mean that we agree with every demand of the child. And this might be a case where it's more helpful for the long-term well-being of the child to not, as they would say, uh, give in to pronoun usage, which might reflect some degree of social transitioning. So Julie is of that persuasion as well. So she reached out to me recently and said, I loved your book, agree with so much of it. Um, I I like your general take on pronouns, but um, I, I, I think there's cases, especially with younger teens that might be wrestling with lots of um, other mental health issues. Maybe they fall within the rapid onset gender dysphoria kind of category. Maybe they're really young, like seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. And um, she says, I, there's, I've got several scenarios where um, it was actually unhelpful for the parent to use a child's pronoun. So I said, you know what, Julie, thank you for reaching out. Uh, let's, can we talk about this in the podcast? And so we were going to have a phone conversation, but I'm like, let's just have a live podcast conversation because this is theology in the raw and this is extra raw. So we're, in a sense, we just had a conversation. I said, I want to hear your perspective because I, I, I keep hearing people I respect share this as kind of one caveat, one scenario where not using a young person's pronouns might be um, the most helpful for that person. And and so again, this isn't kind of this stubborn resistance of this anti-trans, you know, I don't like trans people, so I'm not going to use their pronouns, or this is a Marxist agenda of trying to take over the country, and so I'm just going to resist it. Or it's not, it's not coming from that kind of spirit. And that's why I wanted to have Julie and maybe not some other people on to talk about um, a kind of slightly different perspective. And so we had a conversation about it. And, and for some of you, I think you'll probably just full on agree with her. Um, some of you are parents who are like, man, 
this is exactly my situation and I would agree with Julie. Some of you might say, I totally disagree with Julie. And, and some of you might even say, I can't believe you're even having her on, you know, the whole, like you're platforming this, you know, harmful, dangerous perspective or whatever. Um, I don't like, I don't take that approach. Like, I think if somebody has good, thoughtful things to say, we should consider it. We should wrestle with it. And I thought flat out Dr. Julie Maxwell had good, thoughtful, convincing things to say. And so I'm still wrestling with it personally. Um, I think she brought up some, some really good points and I'm going to let her share those points with us. So we, we focus on the pronoun discussion for the first part. And then we do get into some broader uh, conversations about um, kind of the, the, where, where is the medical community at, especially in the UK and continental Europe? um, Where is the medical community at in terms of addressing teens who identifies trans, who might be experiencing gender dysphoria. It's a huge debate today. Lots of kind of upheaval going on in the UK and in Europe. United States, not so much. We're, we're still kind of behind the times a little bit in terms of some apparent kind of like on the surface medical consensus, which isn't really accurate. But um, yeah, so I think it's helpful for us to kind of look at the, uh, the UK and other countries that are kind of further along than we are in, in this conversation to kind of learn from maybe some mistakes that they've made. Um, and we talk about that quite a bit in this podcast. So uh, that's a long intro, I know, but I want to kind of set it up with um, with uh, this, with kind of my approach to how I've wrestled with the pronoun debate and also why I wanted to wrestle with Julie's uh, really thoughtful perspective. So if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw, support the show for as little as five bucks a month and become part of the Theology in the Raw community. All of the info is in the show notes. Really appreciate your support of this show. Without further ado, let's get to know the one and only Dr. Julie Maxwell. All right. Hey, friends. I'm here with um, uh, somebody who I've known from a, a distance. Uh, I, I've, I've seen your name pop up uh, in some articles and stuff that I've come across. And I was so excited, uh, Julie, when you reached out to me. So uh, thanks so much for being on Theology in Iran. I know this is kind of a last minute setup. We've had some email exchanges and I was like, man, well, let's just get on the podcast and talk about this. And yeah. as I said in the intro, I mean, everything we're going to be Everything we're going to be talking about now is going to be um, debated, controversial. Uh, some of our listeners might, you know, applaud some things we say at one point and then be, you know, cursing and screaming the next point. So uh, this is Theology in the Raw. We're, we're, we want to have open, honest conversations and uh, even especially with sensitive topics like the one we're going to talk about. So, um, Julie, yeah, I want to um, I already shared my perspective on the pronoun uh, conversation. Um, and, um, yeah, well, why don't we jump in? Uh, yeah, let me, let's just back up. Why don't you tell people who you are, what you do, and then, uh, we'd love to dive into the pronoun conversation. Yeah. Hi, uh, so I'm, I'm Julie and, um, I, uh, I'm in the UK. I'm a community pediatrician, which means that I work with children with learning difficulties, autism, ADHD, language disorders, um, I also uh, work for an organisation called Lovewise, which teaches Christian sex education. Um, So that's partly how I kind of got interested in in the whole gender area. Um, Got three of my own children. Um, I was going to say three teenagers, but one's 20, so she's not a teenager anymore. Um, And I also head up the 11 to 14s youth work in my local church as well. And you're in South South East London, you said, or Southwest? Uh, Southwest of London, yeah. Okay, by the air, by the airport or one of the mini airports. Well, about, about an hour from London. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. London was one of my favorite cities. I've only been there a couple of times, but uh, yeah, just uh, yeah, driving in London was. <laughs> I don't recommend <laughs> that for uh, Americans. <laughs> no, 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 UK people either. I only ever go by train, but I'm missing it. I haven't been to London in about a year now, um, oh, wow. so uh, yeah. I'm going on Friday actually. Okay. Um, why don't you start? Let, let, can you summarize your general perspective on um, pro, the pronoun kind of discussion, um, where, where you've come from? And then I want to dive down specifically into your specific field as a pediatrician and, and um, using pronouns with, uh, with younger children, because I know that that is kind of a unique situation. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think as, as I've got uh, interested in, in the whole gender um, issue and, and kind of started off just, I suppose it was a bit of an academic interest to start with. I started reading about it. Um, I then discovered I had a friend who had a uh, teenage son who was uh, identifying as a girl. Um, and then I've increasingly um, read lots of things, but also gradually got to know families who've got children identifying as, as the opposite sex, um, both informally and through work. So I, I, I suppose I've I started off with a very clear kind of, well, I would never use uh, the incorrect biologically incorrect pronouns in any circumstance because it would be dishonest um however you know i sort of think you know it, when i'm faced with a for example a 16 year old who turns up in my clinic um i'm you know to that 16 year old who is a already very troubled young person uh, you know i'm not going to do anything that is going to upset them or make them um you know make them feel uncomfortable However, I'm going to be honest with them. So, you know, it's, I think it, it, it's one of those things that is a little bit dependent on each individual situation. You know, if and, and you might be in a situation where you don't know. So if somebody appears to you and says that they're a boy. Um, it might only be later that you find out that actually biologically they're a girl or, or vice versa. Um, but I think what really concerns me is, is this whole area of, Sort of social transition. So when you're talking about children, and I mean I've I've come across children as young as five or six um, who are, who have socially transitioned, um, and the whole name and pronoun thing is 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 a really big issue for them. So that that for them is the is the sort of big thing that is then often. I mean I don't know how it, how it works in the, in the US, but in in the UK schools will have celebration assemblies where they'll kind of reintroduce this child with this new name and this new pronoun and everybody has to call the child by the new name and the new pronoun and and this child then is is then led into a situation where they believe that everybody really believes that they're the opposite sex so particularly for a young child um which of course those people don't really believe that they're just doing it to, to kind of make that child feel more comfortable um and it also kind of um, solidifies or, or can solidify that gender identity in, in the mind of that young person. You know, and, and we know from um, studies that actually m the vast majority of children with gender dysphoria will, of course, grow out of it. Mm -hmm. And so we shouldn't be doing anything that might prevent them from growing out of it. And, and actually, it, it, it could very clearly be argued that using names and pronouns in in some situations could go you know could could be one of the things that actually pushes them one way or the other um or encourages them one way or the other you, you said something interesting you said the other kids don't really believe it have you said that kind of a passing is that what's that based on yeah. is it based on do you have a, like lots of experience where that's true or why how like if someone's yeah, pushed back so like how do you know they don't believe they don't yeah. actually agree with so, that so i mean so i, I can think of a, a couple of scenarios so one is is a scenario which i i was told about um so it uh, and, I, and i imagine it's a, probably a fairly common scenario so uh, a biological female who um has had the sort of the the, the celebration assembly where they've you know come out as, as a boy they've been given a you know they've chosen a boy's name boy's pronouns all the children at school are using this is kind of sec secondary age so probably 13 14 something like that so everybody is 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 referring to this girl as a boy um and everything all seems to be going well until this uh girl biological girl asks another girl out on a date and this other girl who has been calling this child by a boy's name the reaction is well, of course, I'm not going to go out on a date with you. I'm not a lesbian. Hmm. And 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 the, the 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 girl is then absolutely devastated because she she honestly thought that everyone believed she was a boy. Hmm. But of course, if they really believed she was a boy, they wouldn't be thinking that her asking them out was made them a lesbian. The the other scenario is 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 I think particularly 
um, becomes really obvious, it, it, I think, perhaps more in primary schools where often the children will accept, actually, and believe that the child is, is the gender they say they are, unless you have a, a child with autism. And I, I, I've come across a situation where if you've got a child who is on the autistic spectrum, another child in the class um, decides that, you know, to, to identify as the opposite sex, and this autistic child cannot handle it at all because they, you know, they deal with facts and they know that this child was 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 a boy and is not a girl and, and no amount of anyone telling them any different, you know, and so they end up then getting into trouble because they can't, ch- you know, change it. Um, so, yeah, those are two kind of yeah. scenarios. I'm curious because um, I well, I got a little echo here. Um, let me turn this down. Uh, if a parent comes to you and their kid is wants to transition or is you know um, acting in ways that are stereotypical of the opposite sex, maybe they're wrestling with gender dysphoria and they want to be called. The child wants to be called by the pronouns that match their gender identity for lack of better terms even if they wouldn't frame it that way would you how how would you counsel the the parent then um is it just case by case i mean it depends on what the well let me let me stop i I got all these you know questions that follow questions but i'll just (laughs) would love to hear your thoughts on that um i mean i i think it was interesting actually i was talking to somebody just yesterday um, who, who is involved in a parent support group, and, and they they were saying that a, a lot of the parents that when they first come to that group, they have started using the, the child's chosen name and pronouns, but actually were feeling very uncomfortable about it, weren't really that happy about it, but thought it was thought it kind of they had no choice, and actually ha- once they talked to other people and kind of realise the potential implications of using, of doing that, actually a lot of them then switch back um, to using the, the, you know, the biological pronouns and their, and their birth name. I think, you know, I think I, I would, I would definitely counsel parents against using a child's um, chosen pronouns. I think names are a bit different. I think, I think particularly if a child I mean, in my experience, often they, they, they go for kind of more gender neutral names, particularly the teenagers seem to go, they, they seem to go with gender neutral names rather than clearly, bo- you know, boys names or girls names. Um, so, you know, they might go from, I don't know, um, Luke to Luca or, you know, some kind of yeah. Yeah. Uh, nickname, I suppose, because, you know, children often have nicknames, don't they? So I think that, so, you know, so it might be that you can have some kind of compromise and, and have a, a kind of a nickname. But uh, but I think I think it, it, it's just this issue of to to go along with the a name and pronouns which are clearly belonging to the opposite sex mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. is encouraging a child to take on that gender identity. Um, and and I think particularly with the the issues around, um, you know, restrictions now and people turning around of using things like puberty blockers and you know and um, hormonal treatment you know to, to to allow a child to socially transition and then to say but actually you're going to go through the puberty of your biological sex hmm. you know potentially you are setting your child up for it, it hugely increased distress hmm. because they've started living as the opposite sex and then they've got to go through puberty mm. what well, what happens in those situations where the where the parent began using the child's pronouns but then changed like does that cause a lot of stress and maybe even trauma on the child does it sever the relationship or i'm sure and again, and again i'm sure every case is different and unique but what's your overall perspective on how that has gone i mean i i, I think the reality is 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 that Every single one of these situations is slightly different, although, you, you know, there, there are lots of similarities. And, you know, when you when you hear people like Stella O'Malley and, and Sasha Raya talking about their vast experience, you know, that there, there are lots of similarities. But there are, you know, every individual situation is an individual situation. But I think, you know, I think this whole thing is so 
wrapped up in, um, you know, distress and some of it's around, you know, normal teenage, yeah. you know, yeah. teenagers, you know, they, they like to disagree with their parents, you know, you know, my, you know, my, my 18 year old son, he, you know, he currently refuses to call me mum, you know, I'm Julie, um, you know, and, and they, they just like to argue, they like to disagree with you. Um, and, and actually, conflict is kind of part of being a parent of a, a teenager. Um, and we can't avoid conflict. And I think, actually, if we're honest with, with children, um, and, and I think, you know, you asked about kind of changing your mind about the pronouns. Actually, if a parent is honest and say, you know, actually, we feel we've done the wrong thing here and give reasons why the child may not agree as it as they may not agree with lots of things that we tell teenagers that they can and can't do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it, it's as a parent, it's about doing what's best in the long term, isn't it? And, and as, as a medic as well. And that's where this whole controversy around puberty blockers and, and hormones and all the rest of it is, because it's about what's best for the child long term, not about what's going to immediately mm-hmm. alleviate distress. Mm-hmm. Because while change, using their preferred pronoun name might immediately alleviate some distress, what is it going to do in the long term for that yeah. child? That, yeah. that is the question, isn't it? So what, okay, so I, I've got friends that work with uh, trans teens, especially, especially trans teens that come from pretty, not just not accepting, but sometimes some pretty hostile family environments. And um, I'm thinking of a couple of cases in particular where they would say like, like not using the, the, the trans teens, trans identified teenagers pronouns, you are like pretty massively increasing risk at suicidality, self-harm, anxiety, because, well, yeah, just because this is just adding to the tremendous amount of stress that they're going through. Like, would you say that not using someone's pronouns puts the kid at higher risk of suicide? I I mean, my understanding of of evidence would be that 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 is not supported. Um, I think think that the risk of suicide is, is kind of, is often used as a um, to push push parents into agreeing with things, and and I think you know, you know, I think I mean we're talking about troubled, you know, troubled children and teenagers, and and difficult family situations, and I think you know the important thing is is showing that the child is loved and understood, and I think I think you can show that a child is loved and understood without agreeing with them. And I, th- I think that's the key thing is it's, it's hearing their distress. It's showing them that you, that you love them and you care about them. And I think, you know, I think that can be done without affirming that gender identity. Um, and, 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 you know, and I, think, I, I suppose like everything with teenagers, you know, and children, it's about picking your battles, isn't it? And I think that, you know, there may well be, things that you can comp- other things you can compromise on um but i think as a parent you have to kind of draw draw a line don't you as, as to where you are willing to um concede or not and i think you know the, as a parent the, the things you draw the line on are the things you know are going to be harmful for your child so for example you know i'm, I'm not going to let my child live on chocolate or every day all day every day because i know it'll be harmful for them even though they might want to um and you know and and you know there are all sorts of things that we as parents decide uh, are in the best interest of our children but we do that within a loving relationship and I, and I guess that's the key isn't it if you if you've already got a relationship where there's lots of conflict then then the whole pronoun thing mm-hmm. might be an added source of conflict along with whatever else is going on so so if if there is a case where refusing to use someone's pro, your kids pronoun is kind of is increasing, say, yeah, anxiety, depression, suicidality. You're saying that like that might be due not to simply refusing to use their pronouns. It might be due to many other things going on in their life that you could maybe address and and alleviate. But if it was a very other say otherwise, you know, loving, accepting, affirming, whatever um, household, that if the parent doesn't use that pronoun, then that's going to be a very different case than if it is an actual very toxic kind of environment. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, you know, because it, it it's, yeah, it's about, it's about the environment, isn't it? You know, and, you know, I think it, and, you know, some of these children, you know, come, come from, you know, very loving, loving family. You know, some of them come from very disturbed families, but some of them all come from very loving families, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and, and will often then, you know, they might distance themselves from their families, um, you know, in, in a way that, well, I, I guess teenagers do sometimes anyway, don't they? But I think, you know, this, the, the trouble with this scenario is it has such huge long-term consequences. If, you know, if a child ends up embarking down the medical surgical route, mm-hmm. that has mm-hmm. such life-changing yeah. long-term yeah. consequences that, you know, it, that, that sets it as, as something quite different to other kinds of scenarios. Does that, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> what, what would happen, like, legally or, or, or even socially if, for instance, the child comes out, let's just say they're 10 years old, they change their name, their pronouns, everybody, has, they have a celebration party at school, and what if word gets back that their parent is basically the only one who's not accepting this new name change and pronoun, or, or let's just say the pronoun change, um, could the parent lose custody of the child? Um, or what would happen even just socially if people were aware that the parent refuses to do what everybody else is doing and celebrating? I mean, I, 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 think, I, mean, I, think, that, I think that's what everyone worries about, isn't it? You know, that kind of, and, and I think there have been kind of reports of scenarios where parents have lost custody of their children. I mean, I, I think... You know, I think it would be probably as part of a, a, a bigger scenario. I, I, I would have, I would have thought. I mean, you know, in the in my professional kind of capacity, um, you know, I, I come across more people who are concerned that parents are going along with their child's gender identity mm. than than mm. concerned that parents aren't going along with it that that's what i've encountered professionally okay. um i mean yeah. i guess it depends where you work and and you know what country you're in even um but uh, but i think and and i think i think because there is increasing concern now about the use of puberty blockers and hormones and then then i think it is changing people's opinion as well um because I think people are realising that it's not as simple as this child is trans, they need to socially transition, they need to go on puberty blockers, they need cross-sex hormones, mm-hmm. you know, everything yeah. sorted, job done. Um, because it's not it's not that simple. And actually, you know, there is increasing evidence that, you know, it's not the best way to, to, to treat children. Um, and so I think that does therefore change the perspective, I think, on social transition. Um Okay. Can, yeah, can, can we back up? And I want to talk about that now, like the kind of change in perspective. And, and we talked offline just briefly, but from my vantage point, you know, the, the United States and Canada are still very, very much like the gender affirmative only approach to treating trans identified kids and teenagers is, you know, almost every professional organization embraces that. Any other approach is viewed as conversion therapy, and some people are even trying to um, outlaw it. You know, um, in fact, we have this uh, SOGI laws. You know, sexual orientation and gender identity change efforts are are viewed as you know dehumanizing, if not you know destructive. And and um, but it seems like, from my vantage point, in the UK and in Europe, Sweden, and other countries that have already kind of gone down the gender affirmative only route have kind of in the last year or two began to rethink that. And from a secular perspective, this isn't just Christian, you know, this is people saying, I don't think, like you just said, it seems like it's more complicated than this for the long-term health of this child. Maybe the gender affirmative only approach isn't the best. Is that an accurate, I mean, you're in the UK, so I mean, is that an accurate read on the situation or how what's been the last five years of medical discussion um, regarding gender identity among kids in the UK? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. It, you know, it, the, the, the scene is, is kind of changing. You know, when I, when I first started kind of looking into this and, and sort of writing a few bits about it, it, that, you know, we were, there were a few of us, raising concerns um and and kind of people were a bit kind of you know um and 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 it, interestingly in, in in my workplace i did a teaching session a couple about three years ago now uh, on 
treatment of children with gender dysphoria. And my colleagues were horrified Mm. that children were receiving puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. People didn't even know it was happening, which which is which is really interesting. Um, And and as people have realised what's happening, they're kind of people are becoming more uncomfortable about it. But I mean, I think the the Kira Bell case obviously was a key um, key kind of issue um, where, you know, the the UK courts ruled that um, the children were not able to give informed consent for this kind of experimental treatment that has such long term consequences, particularly on fertility and sexual function, which, of course, a pre-pubertal child can't give consent about something that they have no experience of and no no knowledge of. Real quick, um, real quick for for the audience that doesn't know, the, can you explain just briefly the Kira Bell case? So yeah, so so Kira Bell was um, or is a uh, young lady who went through um, transition, um, and I'm not I'm not exactly sure how how much of a transition she went through, but she basically transitioned was living as a man. Um, she'd had hormones certainly. Um, and I think probably a mastectomy, but I'm not absolutely sure about that. Um, and she then, obviously, she's now what we call a detransitioner. So she's now living as as a woman again. Um, and it is very clear that um, she shouldn't have been put down that route of, of medical treatment um, and that her underlying issues should have been dealt with rather than people just kind of going along with this idea that, transitioning is, was the answer to all, all her problems because that's what you see in these these children and these teenagers they think that transitioning is going to miraculously sort out all their problems um and and the you know and and instead of the you know the the psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists actually dealing with whatever issues they might have as well as the gender issues um they just you know, push them straight down the, the, you know, like you say, the affirmative only um, route. So, you know, so as a result of, of the Kira Bell case, and also as a result of a number of clinicians at the gender identity clinic raising concerns, which was all around the same kind of time. So there is um, underway a review. Um, the NHS England are reviewing the treatment of, of children um, and reviewing the use of puberty blockers. Um, there was recently a um, NICE, which is National Institute for Clinical Excellence, who kind of deal with all the treatments and things in the NHS. They did a review of the evidence of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and, and concluded the evidence is really, really poor. Um, and that, you know, the, the, the evidence just is not there to use these treatments on children at all. Hmm. I'm curious about... Um... You've mentioned several times now, you know, these are troubled teens. Um, maybe can you explain that a, a little more? I mean, um, a trans-identified teenager, are they troubled because they are trans and society doesn't accept them or they're being, you know, there's social kind of pressure on them or whatever? Or is there are there other mental health issues going on? Or what, what do you mean by uh, troubled teens? Um Oh, that's a that's a tr- that's a tricky question, you know. And obviously, I'm I'm not a therapist, um, and I you know, or a psychologist. Uh, I'm I'm just a humble pediatrician, um, but but I think, I mean, I, I suppose you know, growing up is is tricky for lots of children. Um, puberty is a difficult time for for for, for everybody, and and we're we're in a kind of generation as well where mental health is a big issue amongst teenagers generally um and you know we're all very aware that you know teenagers have kind of poor mental health you know mm-hmm. um and there's lots of concerns about it and 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 i think you know i mean my my experience that you know the children that i've seen you know have all had other issues going on now which came first or which you know is is really for to, to unpick um, rather than just kind of saying, oh, gender, let's go with that. And I, th- and I think that is the big issue. Okay. You know, so you might have a child, for example, who who has been abused. Um, so that might be one of the issues. Um, you might have a child who's had a difficult relationship with, you know, with a parent or um, with a sibling. You might have a child who, you know, it's just just finds puberty difficult went through puberty early and and has found that really difficult transition of course a lot of 
there is also a big association with autism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. a, a big number of the, the children who or teenagers who identify as, as transgender actually are on the autistic spectrum. Um, now, you know, I don't think anybody totally understands what the relationship is, um, but there might be any number of reasons why that's the case. I've, yeah, I've heard that several, several in several places. And, and I mean, you're you're more of an expert in autism. So I, when you said that, I was like, oh, I, I, I wrote down in my notepad here. I'm like, I want to ask about that because I've seen percentages anyway. I mean, I don't know. Um, it, probably a general one is, you know, 25% of um, – of teenagers who identify as trans or on the autism spectrum. I've seen 10%. I've seen, so somewhere in that range, whereas 2% of the general population, according to Google, mm-hmm. I mean, I Googled around a couple of places, about 2% might be on the, on the spectrum. So that, that's, you know, five, 10 times, I did my math mm-hmm. right, five or 10 times higher. What, yeah, do you have any thoughts on why, why a very, fairly high percentage of trans teens, trans identified teens, are on the spectrum. I mean, is there a organic connection there or is it just, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and I think, I mean, you, you quoted some statistics there and, I, and I, I, I'm pretty sure that the, the Tavistock, the general identity clinic in London has, has actually said, I think it's somewhere like near 40% okay. of their referrals have got autistic features. Okay. Um, so they may not have a diagnosis of autism, but they, they have autistic features. Uh, well, I think, I mean, my, my understanding from, you know, some of the, um, amazingly, um, you know, uh, experienced therapists that you know that, that I've spoken to is that I think there's all sorts of reasons. So when children are on the autistic spectrum, um, they struggle with social relationships. Um, they struggle, you know, struggle with friendships, um, and which can make them feel like a bit of a misfit, bit of a an odd one out. Um, and if 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 they then kind of get you know, in with a group that that kind of tells them that they're that they're trans. That the reason they don't fit in is because they're transgender. Um, they, you know, can e- could easily accept that. I think the other thing is that children on the autistic spectrum often get very fixated by things, and they're very black and white about things. So once they fixate onto an idea, then it's very difficult to get them off it. So if if they, for whatever reason, begin to to believe that they're the opposite sex, then it's it's very hard to for them to change that change that view again, um, and I think there's also can be sensory issues. So children on the autistic spectrum often are, are very kind of have lots of sensory issues. So they might really like sparkly things or soft things, or or they might not like certain types of clothes. So so the kind of thing about boy girl clothes might be partly a sensory driven thing. Um, so I think there's all all sorts of potential reasons or contributing factors um, as to as to why um, they they kind of you know head down this line you know or they're just you know sometimes I think it, they also are very prone to um, being influenced online as well because you know when you're on the autistic spectrum they they often struggle with face to face social relationships so they might conduct a lot of their relationships online um, and if they find a a community of um, kind of, you know, gender variant people on, online, then they can easily get, you know, join that community um, and identify with them. Would you, if, if you were like, if you were uh, uh, approaching a trans identified teen on the autism spectrum and another one that's not on the autism spectrum, would you approach those differently in a sense? Like, is there a, if if you're trying to like work through the dysphoria, how can we address the the dysphoria? You know, from a maybe psychological perspective, does that look categorically different between an autistic kid and a non-autistic kid? Or I mean, well, as I say, I'm I'm not a therapist, so I'm, I'm yeah, not okay. particularly kind of. But I, I mean, it, my my experience is 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 often it's it's the other it's kind of the flip the, the other way around is that the children present with gender dysphoria, and it, the off the question then is often actually are they on the autistic spectrum okay or, or do they have adhd or um so so rather than necessarily they come to you with autism and then your gender it, it's often it's 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 the other way around because i think if, if you already know they've got autism that is probably easier to easier to kind of manage because you know what you're dealing with um, and there are very specific 
So thing, things like um, CBT and that kind of thing have to be done in a very specific way, I understand, okay. um, when, you, when you've got children on the autistic spectrum. Okay. Um, but I, I, more often it's undiagnosed, so particularly with the girls, because autism is, is often undiagnosed or diagnosed much later in girls. So it can be that the gender issues are the things that, and, and the mental health problems around that are the first thing that... Yeah pop up and then you discover actually they're on the autistic spectrum i'm curious so as a pediatrician i'll I'll, I'll stop asking you uh therapy questions (laughs) let's stick to your actual field i mean as a pediatrician are are you seeing a i I don't want to say a percentage because i don't know but like a, a a a percentage of uh teenagers or kids that used that did identify as trans and now no longer are um even if it was just kind of a social transition, maybe they went through a certain phase or whatever. I know we, we're not, that's people don't like that phrase, but I mean, are you seeing that more and more? Or are you seeing kids that once they identify as trans that they keep identifying as trans? Um, well, that's a, that's a difficult, difficult one to answer because they, as, as a pediatrician, we, we don't actually see that many of them because they would normally be referred to um, to the child and adolescent mental health services rather than to us. Um, okay. So we wouldn't necessarily see them unless we were seeing them probably for another another reason. Um, but I, I think, I, I, you know, and also of course as a, as a pediatrician, I would only be seeing children up to the age of kind of sixteen or seventeen. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. and, and often it seems that 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 because of the way things are at the moment, that they socially transition and, you know, up until recently have been able to then go on puberty blockers and, and then cross sex hormones. It's often the kind of young adults that are the ones that seem to be detransitioning. So okay. they would be out of our, out of our remit, as it were. Um, and I think that's one of the issues as well is, is that is this the whole follow up issue is that nobody really knows what happens to these kids. Um, because, you know, they, you know, they might be afraid to tell people that they've detransitioned. They might not come back for help. Um, they might be, you know, ashamed to. Um, so I don't think anybody really knows yeah. what happens yeah. to these children. It seems like, the, again, anecdotally, that there's a growing number of detransitioners. And I know that, like you said, there, it's getting an actual percentage is complicated for various reasons. The kids not returning yeah. back or, you know, studies being skewed or having bad methodology but are you just anecdotally just as a, a person in the gender conversation in the, UK, in the uk does it seem like there's a growing number of detransitioners or how do you think through that well there's, there's certainly a growing number of detransitioners coming forward there's a, a you know a growing community of detransitioners and, and i guess if you if you look at so so you know for example the the the, the numbers of referrals to the gender identity clinic in the uk Kind of had this massive spike over the last kind of few. I mean, it's, it's kind of leveled out now, but there was there was a massive spike. So I, I guess the detransitioners from that mm. will be in the next few years. So we probably haven't probably haven't necessarily seen that that those coming through. You know, and and the the sort of you know the the, the numbers that I'm you know hearing about sort of kids transitioning in schools and things like that. You know, a lot of those kids haven't even been seen in a gender clinic yet. You know, they're still on a waiting list. You know, they, they but they socially transition often before they've even seen a medical professional, which is which goes back to the whole pronoun thing is that people are embarking mm-hmm. on this social transition thing. And these kids haven't even seen a health professional a lot of the time. Um, mm-hmm. This is just being done on, on kind of on their say so, um, which, you know, which is which is a concern. How, how do you explain? Somebody asked me this. Actually, a couple of people asked me this question, and and it's always a tough one to answer. People say, "Okay, like it seems like within the medical community, there's a growing um, diversity of of um, medical professionals thinking through how to address, you know, a, a child or a teen with gender dysphoria or, or identifying as trans." And yet, in the school system, it just seems like there's no diversity. It seems to be for lack of better terms, a very just radical progressive view that's not even liberal. I mean, I, and maybe I shouldn't use that term. I know UK liberal is different than American yeah. liberal, but I, I know a lot of very liberal people who would be concerned about some of the just radicalness of the 
teaching on gender in, in public schools. And it sounds mm-hmm. like you, like you said, they have celebration parties and everything. But then in the medical community, there's a lot of more diverse opinions on this. And I don't, I don't have, I don't have the answer. Like, how do you explain that dichotomy? Um, is it just the, like, how did a certain viewpoint become so pervasive in the school system? Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and I think that's, it's one of the biggest, biggest issues is exactly what you've just described. And, you know, and, and I think I think it's partly because um, there has been a very active um, sort of groups of, of, of people who've gone into schools and trained and trained schools and trained other professions as well in, in this whole gender ideology thing. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of, you know, education professionals, for example, you know, they, they, they don't know any different, you know, and if, if, if you know, they, if they have been told by the experts that you've got to affirm this child, you've got to use their pronouns, you've got to do all the, of this, otherwise they're going to commit suicide, which, you know, as I said, that, you know, that is not strictly, that is not true, the, the statistics don't bear that out, Um and, and so they've been told that that's what they have to do. And, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, I've spoken to a number of education professionals, actually, who have been very uncomfortable about doing this, but have done it because they felt that that was what they had to do and that that was, the, you know, the what they were being told. And, and that's, you know, and, and it's, you know, there's, there's this sort of huge capture of kind of, well, all the institutions um, by these kind of, you know, activist um organizations that you know are, are sort of pushing one agenda um rather than making sure that everyone's got the, all of the information and the right information and and facts and and evidence and and that's what's really lacking i think in this in this whole argument yeah. um and yeah. i think that's probably where the medical professionals perhaps are a bit different is that you know perhaps we have a bit more access to the you know to the evidence and the arguments um and you know, and certainly in the UK, it's it's the secular medical professionals and um, and therapists, etc., who are who are making the biggest noise about this. Really? Um, not really? Christians, sadly. I, I I think I remember reading somewhere that like, I think it was about a year ago, maybe that there was some statement signed by the is it the Royal College of General Practitioners in the UK about. Yep. signing some maybe it was a was that about concern over puberty blockers or i'm i'm not recalling it does that ring a bell at all or um um i mean there, there, there's the memorandum of understanding yeah um that, that which is about conversion therapy which which kind of lots of organizations signed up to but i think maybe the Royal college of general practice didn't sign up to it maybe that's not um, what I'm thinking of. I, I know I, I know there's some pr- um, medical professors at, at oxford uh, michael biggs i think is one of them yeah. and um yeah. carl carl, carl Hennehan. these are high these are like top of the top right and they've raised con- yeah. concerns yeah. What, what 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 is their concerns they're, they're not like ethically against transitioning on an absolute level i don't think but just cons- are they concerned over like teenagers being rushed to transition or yeah so i mean it, it, you know it it is this whole concern about um the the you know the the impact of puberty block so so i think you know when puberty blockers were first kind of started to be used in this scenario they were used under the kind of understanding that what it would do would be the alleviate the distress of the child um, of, go, of going through puberty in order for them to undergo therapy and to be able to kind of, you know, work out what was going on and kind of, you know, and then the, the puberty blockers could be reversed and then they could go through puberty, and, you know, if they, if they change their mind. And, and unfortunately, and I suppose it doesn't, doesn't take much to kind of work out why, but what they actually found out was that once these children went on to puberty blockers, almost all of them, I think it's 99% of them or something like that, go on to have cross-sex hormones. And, you know, and, and of course, logically, if you, if you kind of think about it, you realise that for a lot of children with gender dysphoria, it, it's kind of the, the process of puberty that matures their body and their mind 
and, and enables them to then come to terms with their body. They might, you know, feel quite uncomfortable with it while it's going on. And, you know, and teen, being a teenager is, is a, you know, it's time of trying to understand who you are. Um, but of course, if you pause that, if you halt puberty, you stop them doing all that stuff. So it's not just the, the physical changes you stop. It's the brain changes. It's the emotional changes. All of those things that would help them come to terms with with their biological sex or potentially in the majority of cases, you've stopped it. Mm -hmm. So they then get stuck in that kind of immature, um, you know, childlike phase. Um, and, and then the next logical thing is the cross-sex hormone. So, yeah, so, so you know, Michael Big and, and um, Carl Hennehan, you know, they raised all the concerns about this and, and about the poor evidence and also the evidence of the, you know, the, the long-term effects of puberty blockers. Because obviously when you go through puberty, you have a growth spurt, mm -hmm. your bone density <laughs> changes, all of those things. So if you stop that, you, you know, you stop all of those normal physical changes as well as all the brain changes and, and emotional changes. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, and, had, and, you know, I've had two endocrinologists on in the last several months. Um, uh, Paul Ruse, do you know Paul Ruse? He's an American um, endocrinologist. No. Um, and, oh, Michael Laidlaw. Do you know Michael? I, I've heard of him. Yeah. I've not met him. He's friends with Will Malone. I know you've, you've, you're, yeah. you know, Will, and, and they both said almost the exact same things and, and not even like, well, here's my thoughts, but there's other perspectives. It's kind of like, this is, there's some basic endocrinologist. Here's from an endocrinologist perspective. Here's what the risks you run if you do either puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones. And it, it, my understanding, again, I, I, I don't like getting over my skis as we say, you know, and, and, and speaking beyond what I, my, my, what I know, um, from what I understand, the, we just don't know the long-term effects of puberty blockers. We, we know that there are risks, all the things that you mentioned, but then in terms mm -hmm. like you know, 10, 20, 30 years, we just don't know because this has been such a new, quote-unquote, experimental way of treating gender dysphoria. Um, but we do know some of the side effects and concerns with cross-sex hormones, right? We do have a lot more knowledge and studies of the risks that people run taking cross-sex hormones. Is that, would that be correct or? Yeah. I mean, I, I obviously, you know, someone like Will or Michael Aidlaw would be, would be much better place to answer this, but yes, I mean, so we do have, but, but what we, what we know is the effects of those mostly in older people. So obviously that, you know, there have been, adults who've taken cross-sex hormones and, and had sex you know sex change surgery and all that kind of thing so we, we do know some of the long-term effects of that but but younger people and teenagers being given cross-sex hormones is still a very new phenomenon so okay. we so we we don't okay. still don't really know because that is that is a very new you know much newer phenomenon um so you know so that is still I would guess quite an unknown thing, yeah. but yes, we do know a lot of the effects. Do, do you think um, going back to the kind of public school uh, view of things and then the medical professional having more diversity of thought and rethinking some things, do you see if you can make a prediction, I don't know if you have the prophetic gift or not, <laughs> that, that, that there, that the school system will end up catching up to some of the current medical perspective um, or yeah. I mean, in, in, Two or three or four years, do you think there will be more diversity of thought within the schools, or does it not look too hopeful? Well, there, there, there are certainly a lot of people in the UK working very hard to um, to try and um, kind of change what's happening in schools. Um, so, I mean, at the, 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 in the UK, there was a new guidance around re, um, relationships and sex education came out uh, last year, um, and, and as part of that, there was a, a kind of a, a bit in it which talked about um, actually about gender ideology and making sure that facts are taught and that children aren't taught that just because you like girl things that you're a girl or just because you like boy things that you're a boy kind of thing and so there are a number of secular organizations who are working very hard um, to kind of try and counter and argue and um Make sure that you know that, that actually what children are being taught in school is accurate, scientific, and and also complies with the Equality Act as well. Um, so you know, so there is there is a lot a lot going on, a lot going on. 
And can you talk to us just briefly about what's going on in, I think, Sweden? I think I got it from your Twitter feed, actually, that they did they outlaw <laughs> did they outlaw puberty blockers for kids under 18? Is that did I read that right? Or? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I haven't I haven't read it in, in masses of detail today. I've been too too busy. But um, so it seems that, yeah, in Sweden, the um, the clinic there, which I think is this the, the, sort of the main clinic which treats children there. Um, has has made a ruling that because of the concerns around use of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, that that they are not going to use them in under 16-year-olds at all. Um, and in 16 to 18-year-olds, only as part of a, a clinical trial. Um, so that, that's what they, you know, come up with in Sweden. So, um, which is, you know, which is really encouraging together with the sort of, you know, developments that have happened in, in the UK over the last year, um, it looks like thing, you know things might be turning, and of course the the key thing then is making sure that these children get the help that they need. It's no use just saying we well, can't have that. Right. We need to then make sure that they are getting the therapeutic help, the, the psychological help um, that they that they actually need, um, and that is the key. That's the key thing that, that we need to be making sure now. And have you? I know that again. So this isn't your primary area, but when kids do get the proper help or i mean when certain possible psychological issues are addressed first rather than you know transitioning them are, are have you seen um from your perspective success in that because I, I have heard people say like well how else the only i've heard people tell me you know the only way we know that is effective in treating gender dysphoria is medical transitioning um i i yeah uh, and there's obviously different you know, different opinions on that. Um, have you seen when people do approach it from a more psychological perspective that there is success in reducing dysphoria? Cause I, yeah, I've got friends that they were like, I just, I've got one friend in particular, um, who after several years of trying to address the dysphoria through, you know, other ways, you know, suicide, two suicide attempts and just nothing, nothing was working, you know? And that's, I don't really have a, it's not my area, but I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I would say. Um, what, what do you do when a psychological approach just isn't working for lack of better terms? I mean, you just keep going or how do you, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, I think, uh, is it, I mean, it's really difficult, isn't it? And I, and I think it is one of those things where there are no easy answers. Is, and, and I suppose, I suppose it's, it's the same with, you know, mental health generally, isn't it? You know, there are people who suffer with depression for their entire lives. There are people who suffer with anxiety for their entire lives. And, and it doesn't matter what mm-hmm. treatment you give them, sometimes it, they will always struggle with it. You know, and I think there are people who will struggle with gender dysphoria their entire lives. But there are equally, I mean, I think, I suppose probably the most helpful thing is, is hearing stories of adults who now look back at their childhood and, and say, goodness, if I'd grown up, in, in this kind of scenario now, I think I would have identified as transgender. Um, so I think Stella O'Malley says says that, um, you know, and I've heard, you know, a number of others kind of saying that, you know, when they were a child, they really wanted to be a boy. They thought they were a boy. Um, but actually, you know, back in those days, you know, you, you know, you were, you know, a, a, a tomboy or, you know, a sort of girl who just liked climbing trees and, and whatever it was. But then, but then they've gone through puberty and got married and had children and you know, been perfectly happy to be a woman. Um, so you know, so I, so I guess perhaps that is you know, perhaps that's where we kind of need to look at those ones because those are the ones who their gender dysphoria was there, it was real, but it resolved. Um, but actually, there you know, those people are quite clear that you know they think that if they were growing up in today's society mm-hmm. they would probably have identified mm-hmm. as transgender and maybe it may have gone down the you know medical and surgical route and yeah. been infertile and yeah had to have yeah. medical treatment for the rest of their lives yeah. which is that is so, so sad you know like you said you know that that's where a, a big concern of mine is is specifically with teens and, and children being raised in, in the environment we have today um, yeah, the, you know, m- maybe they're 
dysphoria is wrapped up with other things that need to be addressed, you know? I mean, the whole rapid onset gender dysphoria discussion and um, mm. it's just, and it's, it, it is, it's troubling when in particular in, in schools, you know, I talked to a lot of friends that are in the public school system and, and how there's, there's just, there's no diversity of thought. There's nothing. It's like, there's the gender affirmative only approach and then everything else is transphobic or conversion therapy. And it's like, man, there's, it's, it, it still is shocking because there's, there, there's, from my perspective, there's a good number of very secular, very liberal voices who are saying, no, there's several different ways yeah. in which we're still learning, you know, to, to approach mm-hmm. someone who identifies as trans. There just simply is no one size fits all. Um, yeah. Well, Julie, I've taken enough of your time and I really appreciate <laughs> you reaching out. Um, and, uh, yeah, I go. I mean, the the pronoun thing. I know it's really sensitive, really touchy, and especially when it involves parents and kids. And so, I, I really hope that um, parents maybe listening can can take away just man, this is uh, this is this can be really complicated, you know. Um, but I, I hope that your perspective will give them something to think about. Do you have any final words for a, specifically a parent with uh, a child or teenager who is identifying as trans and, and it's, you know, my audience is primarily going to be Christian parents. Uh, any last words of yeah. advice for that parent? I, I, mean, I, I guess I would say, you know, walk with them, love them, pray for them. Um, and, you know, whatever the, the, the sort of outcome kind of keep, keep, keep your line and, and know that you, you know, know that you've done what, done what you can um in the most loving way that you can i I suppose that because you don't want to kind of in the future regret doing saying things or doing things um and you know but but you know but loving them sometimes is about being truthful and biblical um not just going with what they say it's a good word julie thank you so much really appreciate you thanks for coming on theology in the rock